Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 21st episode of The Bond Brain. I'm your host, Bud West. Recently, we have had a milestone passed uh, by Daniel Craig that was trumpeted on a, a few different websites. MI6HQ.com was where I originally read it that the tenure for Mr. Craig has surpassed Roger Moore. He has spent more days in the role of James Bond than any other actor. And with Roger Moore in a close second, but as each day passes, Craig keeps adding to his total. Obviously, Sir Roger Moore is is not going to be able to up his total. He's fixed. But I, I kind of looked at that achievement as kind of, I, I don't know, I don't know how exactly to put it to say that it, is it really that much of an achievement to eclipse Roger Moore by one day, but only have at that point four films to his credit where Roger Moore had seven at that point is, I, I think, kind of takes away from the achievement itself. And, you know, let's face it, we have had a lot of downtime during the tenure of Daniel Craig. And I enjoy a little downtime, don't get me wrong, I think that every movie series needs it. I'm not sure the days of the 60s with the, the movies coming out every year would work now for Bond, but we've had some really, really long gaps in the tenure of Daniel Craig. Now that that's not to disparage the job that he's done, I think he's made some really good movies in my opinion. I'm not a big fan of Quantum of Solace. The other three films I like, uh, I prefer Casino Royale of the four, No Time to Die. Obviously, the jury is still out. We haven't seen any of that yet to tell what's really going to go on in that film. But overall, I think that Craig has done a, a good job, and he just hasn't worked a lot, and he's left some rather big gaps. Now, I don't particularly like the gaps, but you know that you can sort of make a point when you look at some of these statistics that it's it's very possible that these gaps may have helped the series in the past. It's very hard, of course, to look at straight box office receipts for these actors when you have some actors cranking out films that occur at a time when people are paying $5 a ticket versus $2 for a ticket versus $12 for a ticket. So you really have to look at box office receipts and do an adjustment for inflation to see where all of these films rank. Now, when we make those adjustments, um, two of Daniel Craig's, excuse me, three of Daniel Craig's four actually all fall within the top 10. So, you know, you can certainly argue on his behalf that, that he has done a lot for the franchise. So what I started to do was look at even further the trends, the box office receipts, the gaps in between the films, and, you know, did Bond hit a low point? Did Bond has certainly gone up and down? But when we look at up and down, it's not really fair for, say, a person such as myself to look at the up and down based on the films that I like or do not like. So I dug into the gaps of time and the numbers. Adjusted for inflation, I was sort of surprised to see Skyfall 
come out of the number one spot. I really thought it was probably within the top five, and but for many years, Thunderball and Goldfinger, when you adjusted those numbers, came out way ahead. Now, it's, it's only a slight lead. However, Skyfall does top the other two. Surprisingly, for all the criticism that it gets, Spectre, when adjusted for inflation, and you don't have to make a big adjustment there, does come in at number four. And except for Quantum of Solace, every single one of Craig's movies, as far as box office returns, are in the top ten. And though Quantum of Solace isn't there, and it's, you know, as I said, not one I really care for, uh, it's still knocking on the door and sits currently in, you know, the 11th spot. Starting in 1962 with Dr. No, we start to see a huge rise and almost a meteoric rise to the top of the profit levels for the Bond movies. And by 1965, film Thunderbolt is pulling in more than twice as much money as the original Dr. No. So you've moved from you know, your original film in 1962, and with a very small gap, you turn out from Russia with Love at in 1963, with only a 370-day gap between the release of the two films, so it's slightly more than a year. And Goldfinger is actually released less than a year after From Russia With Love. So by the time you get to Thunderball, you have had, you know, four films in 62, 63, 64, 65, and you're making somewhat of a climb. Then we get a little bit of a wait. And slightly over a year later, with a wait of only about 530 days, You Only Live Twice is released. However, the the profits, or the excuse me, it's not the profits, it, it's the gross income from the Bond movies have started to take somewhat of a dive at that point and come back down to from Russia with love levels. And by the time we get to the one film made by George Lazenby, Bond is somewhat on a downward trajectory. And though that is a film that I really like, it, it really has, at that point, it would be come in as one of the lowest, you know, grossing films outside of Dr. No. And since Dr. No was the first film and not everyone was familiar with the character, you can see how it kind of starts at a lower level. After On Her Majesty's, though, Bond begins sort of an erratic run, and Diamonds Are Forever brings in some more money. Roger Moore's debut, Live and Let Die, actually turns out to be his highest grossing film. And for some reason that I I can't really explain, his second film takes a big drop. He recovers by his third film. So there's a drop in the gross for the man with the golden gun however the spy who loved me kind of takes those profit levels back up and then the bond series actually starts to hit a sort of a nosedive here back to below the gross receipts uh, when adjusted for inflation even from dr no uh, roger moore's final outing is below that of connery's very first film and that is followed by two sub-Dr. No gross receipts on films, The Living Daylights and License to Kill, Timothy Dalton's two, two outings as Bond, you know, or actually when adjusted for inflation below the original opening of when a character wasn't all that familiar. Now, that's the time period that I really got sucked into Bond, and The Living Daylights was, you know, the, one of the films that I went out of my way to see multiple times in a theater. 
but it, it really doesn't kind of bode well for Dalton's tenure that his films were not as well attended as, say, the original outing for a character that not everyone was familiar with. But then, you know, something odd happens. We have the whole Kevin McClory lawsuit where an injunction forced Eon to shut down Bond filming. And there was that period of time where Eon could not produce a Bond film while they settled the issues with Thunderball and the rights to Bond. And that, of course, we complain about that Daniel Craig gap but the for this last film, but the thing is, though, that, that that gap obviously was much, much longer. As a matter of fact, it's almost 2,400 days between License to Kill and GoldenEye. That, that's in that six-and-a-half-year gap taking us you know, well into the 90s before Pierce Brosnan takes over and it takes off. And I know that's kind of looked at by a lot of people as a dark time, but I I almost start to think that there are times when the absence makes the heart grow fonder factors in here. I wonder if Bond would continue to go to its downward trajectory. But when you get to License to Kill, when you equalize all these numbers over the decades, you could see that License to Kill is the, is the bottom of the barrel. Of the current films that are out, when adjusted for inflation, License to Kill comes in rock bottom. The bottom three, and you've got four films that are sub Dr. No. You've got Octopussy, The Living Daylights, A View to a Kill, and License to Kill, and all four of those are below the numbers for Dr. No. And, you know, if Dalton had continued and they put out yet another film, you have to wonder would it have died. With the big gap, you actually take a pretty big jump in the first you know, half of the 90s, we get all the way into, I think it was 95 when GoldenEye came out. Yes, 95. And But you take a, a really, really big jump in profits over License to Kill. It is, it's not quite double, but, it, but it's knocking on the door. And we go through a period of time where the Brosnan films begin to creep back up. His next three films don't quite reach the level of GoldenEye, but they're relatively close. And then, of course, we we get to see more of a jump with Craig. So I've always looked at that period of time, that gap, the whole McClory episode, as, as being bad for the series. But now I wonder, has it been a good thing? And I'm trying to keep that as a positive eye going into No Time to Die. Maybe, you know, we're going to be maybe a little less critical of No Time to Die because it's been so long. Hopefully, we don't go through these long periods of time. But I'm starting to think that maybe the larger gaps are maybe a little better for the series. Now, Craig's films initially started out 2006, we get Casino Royale. 2008, we get Quantum of Solvus. It looked like we were heading back toward, you know, the, the, the Connery era, the early more years when we were kicking these things out and they, they were producing these things. I say we as if I was making a movie, lane, which <laughs> clearly I'm not. But, but um, where they were kicking these things out and we were seeing these things every two or three years. Then you get that gap. 
Quantum of Solace 2008, we go all the way to 2012 for Skyfall, and then another five years. So, you know, we've got this two films in nine years, but if you think about the quality of Skyfall, it was pretty good. And the box office receipts for Spectre, even though uh, a lot, there, there was quite a few people who panned it, I liked the film. I like the return of some of the old the old aspects of the series, but it still did, you know, well at the box office. And to come in fourth when compared to all the other films, it guaranteed that the franchise kept going. What I'm really trying to say is I know everyone hates these gaps, but I'm starting to believe that the gaps are maybe better. That people don't get worn out with the Bond story. That maybe these gaps of three years, four years, five years are better for the series. I mean, would you rather see three films in a short period of time and have the Bond films go away, or see three films stretched over a long period of time and you're always talking about the next one. I mean, think about it. Nobody ever really sits back so far and says, gee, will the Bond films continue? Or will they make another one? They've done that with Mission Impossible. They've done that with Jason Bourne. But you always expect there to be another Bond film. They've, they've really set a precedent. And even when one guy steps aside, we automatically assume who's going to be the next guy. They never say, is there going to be a next guy? It's always, who's going to be the next guy? And I think that's good. But I think these larger gaps, though we don't like them, in my personal opinion, I'd like to see more films. But if it keeps the series alive, then maybe these are kind of a blessing in disguise. That's me looking at numbers. That's my personal opinion. Uh, Check out my Instagram page, uh, The Bond Brain thebondbrain at gmail.com if you you want to weigh in you have a a counter opinion uh, you think I'm nuts uh, anything you got out there Uh, this is Bud West with the Bond Brain and the Bond Brain will return